Debt is not the enemy. It's not bad to owe money. We sort of tend to look at debt as a bad thing. There's so many ways to look at it. You can look at debt as an investment. I often would talk about like cleanser clog. We can think about this concept as cleanser clog being, you know, cleanse being what's something that's good for you, clog being something that's bad for you. So if you're just hemorrhaging money because you've got things going out for subscriptions that you never use, or you're just ordering stuff every other day on Amazon that you don't need, or, you know, there's just a way to look about money that debt is accumulating and it's out of control, right? That would be a clog. But if there's money that you're doing that's investing in yourself and you have to take on a debt because it's it's an investment in yourself or in your business, or in your children or your children even taking this out, that should be looked at as a healthy, very healthy thing. That is a resource that we have a privilege to have. It's a privilege to be able to take out a loan, but we shouldn't make the loan the bad guy. This is Impact, the podcast where we explore entrepreneurship, mindset, and health to provide you with the ingredients for an unregrettable version of your life story. Running a practice is hard. There's always just so much to do. I want you to have more time to focus on the parts of your practice that fuel you, like helping people, and spend less time on tedious, soul-sucking admin work. That's why I recommend Practice Better in my Clinician Business Labs program. Practice Better is a complete practice management software for health and wellness professionals who want to scale their practice without the burnout. Practice Better was founded for practitioners by practitioners, and they understand what it takes to build your dream practice. Whether you're looking for your next client or growing your team, Practice Better is here to help make scaling your practice easier while helping you maintain your boundaries. Practice Better helps automate your booking, charting, and invoicing, but it's also way more than that. Creating protocols and treatment plans and tracking your client's progress is easier than ever, so your clients can be engaged in every step of their plan and you can provide a high level of care without burning out. Practice Better also integrates with your other favorite software so that your client data and recommendations sync securely and seamlessly. You can import data and results easily from lab orders, online dispensaries, fitness trackers, and even integrate Practice Better with your email and marketing funnels. And with their programs feature, you have everything you need to build and run an automated group program so that you can earn additional income all in one streamlined software. You'll also become part of a global community of wellness professionals who you can learn and grow with. So if you're a health and wellness professional looking to manage your practice with ease, get started with any Practice Better plan for free for 14 days. And as an exclusive offer for our listeners, get 30% off your first three months on any paid plan when you use the promo code MEGAN30 at checkout. It's time to say goodbye to a patchwork of software and hello to an organized and efficient practice. Money. We're talking about it again. And I prom I was gonna say, I promise we're not gonna talk about it anymore, but we are. We're just we're just gonna keep talking about it because it's kind of that thing that just keeps happening in the background of being an entrepreneur or living a life or adulting or any or all of the above. And I will share with you the irony of this conversation and, and my guest today. So I am joined by my friend Mary Shores. And Mary was part of our mashup in December when I took a break from recording new episodes and really wanted to reinvigorate some of these past conversations. And my team arranged for her to come back and have uh, an interview today. And when I was 
in the process of prepping for this interview, before I knew that Mary was on my schedule, I reached out to one of my other mastermind groups and said, I need someone to come in who can help navigate a conversation around how we have challenging conversations around money, how we step into that space compassionately, but also with our our boss pants on and share and, and ask for our side of that financial equation. And all sorts of names and recommendations came up. All sorts of people said, oh, Megan, I'd love to have conversations on the podcast. Some like killer, amazing uh, women who you're going to have the opportunity to hear from over the upcoming months. Little did I know, Mary was already on my schedule. Mary is one of these individuals with a superpower and a skill that I feel like happens through divine universal intervention. Mary has owned for most of her career, if not her entire career, a debt collection agency. What Mary does with her work is approach this difficult conversation from a place of empathy and compassion. She is an incredible entrepreneur herself. But what she has also done is she's guided entrepreneurs and individuals to be able to have these challenging money conversations over and over again in her own in her own practice and in her own work. She is the author of a book, Conscious Communications, where she talks about this system. She has done a TEDx talk related to these principles and the principles she's learned by holding space and compassion and empathy for individuals who are managing debt. And what she's talking about on this conversation and on this podcast and on this episode today are all of these things in practice all of these challenging conversations, a framework and a mechanism to be able to compassionately hold space for individuals who are moving through and are challenged financially, but also for you to hold space as a leader within your own business and ask for the payment that you deserve. Mary is intelligent. She is compassionate. She's my friend. And you get to hear from her now. Mary Shores, welcome to Impact. Hey, Megan, it is so good to see you again. It is so good to see you. I just want, I wish everyone could see what I see right now. So yes, I have the beautiful Mary Shores in front of me. And then there, her cat is just sitting on the chair at, on her shoulder, like as if she's like going to be in the interview and own space in this interview uh, at the same level. It's absolutely amazing. Mary, what's your cat's name? His name is Rascal. His nickname is Kitty. Well, Kitty, welcome to the, uh, welcome to the podcast. Let's step into this, Mary. You have been on the podcast twice before. And one of the times you were on, we actually just remashed that whole episode in the last few weeks talking all about money. But the first time you were here, we talked about launching a book. And in fact, I didn't even know your whole background as it pertains to um, money when we did that first interview. You spoke at my event. I knew nothing about that piece. And fast forward, you have done a TEDx talk related to this particular conversation. This is like your jam and authority is talking about money and debt and challenging conversations. And this has been something that I have been speaking to the last little while. Can you give our audiences a background on you so they have context for your expertise in this arena? Because it is profound. Mm. Yeah, thank you, Megan. And you know, thanks so much for bringing up the uh, mentioning the TED Talk as well. So I'm going to make sure and send you guys over a link for that just in case anyone wants to watch it because there's a lot of great information in that TEDx. 
I'm considered a second generation debt collector. So what that means is, you know, my parents opened a collection agency in 1986 when I was 13 years old. So I suppose you could say debt collection is in my blood. It's really the only career that has been my staple my entire life. So when I was 24, I actually became one of the youngest people in the world to open my own collection agency, which seems like a strange thing for uh, you know, a young lady to do, but I did it. It definitely grew and grew. But I have always, as you know, Megan, I have always been a super, I'm just going to say, person who's deeply, deeply into the concepts of connection, consciousness, and spirituality. And so I guess I went through somewhat of an existential crisis because you know, really these, these topics were way more important to me than my career. And I was somewhat concerned that having this career might get in the way of my spiritual side, like my very deep spiritual side. And what I learned was that it's really my mission to make a dent in the collective consciousness of how we go about collecting debt in our world, because, you know, money is a thing, you know, it's like the currency we all play with in this lifetime. And as you mentioned, when we were in the green room, you know, about money as an energy, you know, it's very important and people can understand that concept. But there is this practical aspect where we have to learn how to collect the money that we're owed, but also do it in a way that is highly connected and conscious. And you spoke about when we were having this conversation earlier before we hit record, there's a psychological burden to debt and debt on both sides. You know, one of the language pieces that could be attributed to that is there is a shame around that piece. And one of the challenges of asking people for that money is like, you know, you are a triggerer and poker of that shame. Can we start there? Can we just start by like labeling and understanding on both sides uh, the psychology of, of debt? And the mindset of debt. What does that look like? Because you've had so many of these conversations yourself. Absolutely. So I'll say, let's start with the shame piece. When someone is in a situation where they owe money, there's a deep shame associated with that. I stumbled upon this like a long time ago. You know, I'm going to say 20 years ago when I was early on in my career. And honestly, Megan, I thought I would use a sales approach to collections. So early in my career, you know, I was on the phone with people because I've actually done every job in collections and I was trying to sell them on the idea of paying their debt. So I would tell them how, you know, it would improve their credit score and how they had, you know, retained a service and it was their responsibility to pay for it. And that approach didn't work. And people think even to this day that that approach can work, but it really, it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because it doesn't address the real underlying issue. And that is the shame and the unworthiness that goes along with having a debt. There's some really fascinating research that the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau did on debt. And what they have found is people that have a debt, you know, oftentimes they, are lacking in financial wellness altogether. So it could be things like, you know, they're living paycheck to paycheck. They don't have proper insurance. They don't really have a financial plan whatsoever. 
And when something happens to them, say their car breaks down, this is really a, a large crisis and they just can't manage they just can't manage their money because and oftentimes they don't have enough money. So that's the one side of it. You know, that's the side where someone owes the money. There's another side that I think we never talk about and that I would love for us to talk about more often. And it's the feeling that you have when someone owes you money. So have you ever have you ever had that feeling? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, what's it feel like? Well, I've talked about this a lot lately. There is a there's a betrayal feeling mm. when someone owes it. And it's one thing if they owe it it's, to me, it's another thing if they're like, it's, it's optional for me to pay it. But betrayal would be the word I pick. That's a really, that's a really interesting word. I've heard story after story of things just like this. Uh, years ago, I was, I was collecting for this retired doctor just in my local town. He owned a sleep clinic and he literally called me one day, Megan, and he said, Mary, he goes, you're never going to believe what happened. He said, last night I ordered pizza and the pizza delivery driver came to my door and lo and behold, it's this guy who owes me $45 and he's in collections at your office. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. And he was just, his mind was blown. Now you have to understand this debt was probably seven to 10 years old, but he recognized the guy as the pizza delivery guy. How much psychological burden has that doctor been holding on to mm-hmm. for all of those years to the point where he was so triggered that this gentleman um, delivered a pizza and didn't even recognize him? In many ways, that psychological burden that that doctor had been holding on to was way more than the pizza delivery de- guy had been holding on to, right? Mm-hmm. Because it can feel like, you know, something has been, well, you said the word betrayal. Mm-hmm. It can feel like someone has taken advantage of us. It can feel can feel all different kinds of ways, but I think we don't talk about it. And it's like what we really need to do is have solutions in place, understand this as a business function and the business role, make plans for it accordingly, but more importantly, learn to let go of it. Learn to let go of it and learn to move on. I think part of it for me is that I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept of like a sacred contract. When I engage with someone and deliver a service for someone, this is like a sacred act of my life's work. Like it's not a flippant transaction for me. It is deeply meaningful. There's two levels to this because people will be like, you know, when I'm transacting with a multinational corporation and I forget to pay them $45, I don't care. They're a non-entity. But there's a ripple effect of, of tolerating that, that behavior in yourself. But this is, I think that's where that came from is that here's my end of the bargain. I'm going to deliver to the best of my capacity. I just expect the same in return. And so, you know, it might even not necessarily be the person. It's just a, it's a betrayal in the contract and the energy of the contract. I, I just want to note that because I think sometimes when we are paying someone else, we have a tendency, we have a narrative in our society. Oh, it's the man. I'm sticking it to the man. It's, but, you know, as a small business owner, there's people behind that piece. I think in general in business, we need to, we need to talk about that. I'm hijacking your podcast now. <laughs> I definitely agree with you. You know, the thing is, I would say it's really important to understand that when people are making a decision to not pay, 
you know, there could be many reasons that they're making that decision and, and understanding where their decision is coming from can help you because it's not going to, it's not going to do anyone any good to be holding on the, onto those feelings of betrayal, you know? And so that's why having, you know, just like in any area of your business, having a plan, having, you know, how do you have those conversations can actually help, help you feel better about it and be able to move on. The things that are in our environment right now, economically, they're here, they're here, they're happening. And so non-payment is going to become an issue. If it's not already becoming an issue, which likely I believe it is for a lot of your audience, Mm -hmm. I think we need to shift the conversation to how do we have these conversations? Absolutely. How do we talk to our patients, our clients? You know, how do we talk to those who owe us money, but still preserve the relationship? Hanging on to emotion with money, I actually don't think ever is a good idea, good or bad. Oh, I'll be happy when like respecting the neutrality of money is a really key, a uh, key component, but being empathetic towards the circumstances of the individual on the other side of the transaction are, are really important. So, you know, in that, in that spirit, how do you approach these difficult conversations? Cause this is one of those things that I'm talking to my clients and they're talking about their patients. I'm like, it will get easier with practice, but they don't have to have this conversation that often. You've literally had this conversation over like decades of your career and with thousands of individuals. And I really can't think of anyone who can just like lay it down with such uh, authority. So like Mary, how do we have this difficult conversation with money? One thing that uh, some of your audience may not know about me is, okay, so we've said I own a debt collection agency, but then there's this strange juxtaposition. So anybody who knows me, Mary Shores, knows like, like okay, I'm, I'm this debt collector, right? But then I have this other side of me and I've written a book about communication called Conscious Communications. And in that book, it is really about how do we have deeper conversations? I've been doing training and development in the collection industry and in the medical industry for about 20 years now. And so when COVID first happened and when lockdowns first happened, I got right to work because I knew that these conversations were going to become even more difficult. You know, like, how dare you ask me for money? Don't you know there's a lockdown? So I even created a lesson around it called debt collection in a crisis. So I'm going to give you just like the practical how to do this. Okay. This is one tip. So I hope that you guys all have a notebook because this will really help you change the conversation around debt. First of all, you have to be willing to have the conversation. You know, how many of you are avoiding having those conversations? How many of you maybe want some of your team members or your staff, your billing staff to have these conversations, but you're not really engaging them in how to have the conversations? So it's not like you can just tell someone, oh, you know, start calling on all these past due accounts and expect them to do a good job because immediately they will have anxiety about having to have that conversation. So, you know, we've talked about like the shame and the unworthiness of the people who have the debt. We've talked about the betrayal that we can feel when someone owes us a debt. But now let's talk about like that fear that the person who has to have the phone conversation can have. I call it the fear of the freak out. So one way that we can get over this is, you know, let's say someone has said they're going to stop paying you and you've, you've asked them, you know, why, and they're going to say something about economic uncertainty, or they're going to say, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have the money. I'm not sure I can continue to afford it. Then, you know, you can ask them what I call a feeling question. 
So let's just say, for example, that they've said they've gotten laid off from their job. And remember, the goal here is we want to open up the conversation and we want to preserve the relationship. So you can say to them, how are you feeling about your finances now that you've been laid off from your job? Now they're going to answer in one of two ways. So the first way is a certainty response. And the second way is an uncertainty response. So if they say the certainty response, it's going to look something like, oh, you know, um, it was a little, it was a little bit of a shock. I was blindsided. I didn't see it coming. The good thing is that um, I did get a severance package and my husband is working. Something along those lines. Okay. That is a certainty response. So now that you have that information, you'll be able to take that conversation, you know, in the direction it needs to go. If someone says an uncertainty response, it might look like, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, there was no severance. There was no plan. I didn't see this coming. I really just don't even know what my next steps are. So that looks like an uncertainty response. Why is this important? Because when you talk to someone, when you're asking them questions, you're getting them to open up. You're getting them to discuss the emotions of it. And what we know, what we know from uh, social psychologists is that discussing the emotions behind a feeling helps those feelings to dissipate. So actually engaging someone in a conversation like this helps those emotions to actually dissipate to where they can get out of maybe their emotional section of their brain and into more their action planning of their brain. And you'll want to be prepared to hear this kind of information. And you'll want to have, you know, whoever's having this conversation, know what the options are going to be for that consumer. So whoever we're talking to and they owe the money, you know, in your mind, you need to have some options available that you're going to be able to offer them. I love that. You love it? Yeah, I do. And so what happens when, when they just respectfully decline the options? Or do you find when you just get, they give an opportunity to just share their feeling that that, that actually isn't what gets executed upon? It's going to depend. One of the very first times I ever taught, I went to this large hospital and I was teaching like their entire patient account staff how to collect money. And I remember what I did, uh, my assistant and I, we went to the grocery store and we bought a bag of turnips and we took it into the classroom at this large hospital and I handed it to the director of patient financial services. And I said, okay, let's uh, see how, how long it takes you to squeeze this blood out of the turnip. You know, this is something that as a professional debt collector, I'm well aware of. People have a hierarchy or a priority system of how they're going to pay. So no one is going to be able to give you money, number one, that they don't have. Right. So I think determining whether somebody has the money, like they have, they have the, the ability to pay. They just don't have the will to pay. You know, that's one thing. Right. And then if they really don't have the ability to pay, they're literally, there's just nothing. There's nothing that they can do. Then, you know, maybe that person should be even looking at filing bankruptcy. That's when we need to understand that you know, depending on what your options are. And you were explaining to me that you have clinicians that can't even use like a credit and collections. Mm -hmm. So you have to go, you have to understand like your compliance, your regulation and your industry and what it allows you to do. 
So if, it, if you can't work it out with the consumer on your own, then I think you have to take a look at what legal options you have. What I can tell you though, and this is super important, is that you can decrease the delinquencies in your office if you learn how to have those conversations and if you train your staff how to have those conversations. So the best answer is prevent the accounts from getting behind in the first place. And how do you recommend people do that? So I have this concept. It really starts, you know, if we talk about the patient experience or the client experience, it starts from the moment that they make contact. What we need to do is we need to be setting expectations from the very first second. So I see this all the time. Let's just say I'm working in a clinic and I'm evaluating, you know, all the different patient interactions that happen or all the different client interactions. Every touch point is an opportunity to talk about payment. Okay. Maybe not when you're in the room with the patient or in the room with the client, but when they set the appointment, when they set the appointment, they should be given proper expectations of what is going to happen at the time of service. Does that make sense? Totally. In your opinion, Megan, with the people that you work with, do you think that that's already something that they've mastered? Like 100% all your friends and your people in your mastermind, like they are all making sure that people know what's expected of them financially before they walk in the door. No. You know, I, I think part of that is universally, I don't think we're taught how to talk about money. Mm. And I'm not just speaking to my industry. So I would love your take on this, but having conversation, having challenging conversations, one, I don't, I think we tend to avoid, and we might be able to generalize that around gender and socialization and all of those pieces. So that's one component. I don't, I just don't think a lot of us have have been well-versed or given the experience of how to have a difficult conversation over and over again. The second piece is that I don't necessarily think that we have generationally been well uh, socialized to have conversations about money. It was taboo. We don't sit around. My family's different this way. So I thought everyone did this. Like we, we get together and it's like the opening conversation every time we see each other. It's like, well, let's just talk about something related to somebody's will and then let's go to the ball game. Like we just talk. We just like it's this pragmatic conversation of like, oh, I need you to sign this or do this. And like, I thought everybody's family was like this, but th- this is not, uh, that, that is not the case. So, so conversations about money are actually, I, I, I just think we don't have experience with it. Yeah. We have emotion associated with it. We have a set of rules associated with how we're supposed to talk about uh, money. And then of course, business owners get into a pickle um, because they've, they've never been given the exposure to be able to do something with that. This is my very long answer to like, no, I think most people are, especially in small businesses are completely unprepared um, to be able to have these conversations. I mean, everything you're saying is right. That's why we have the fear. Remember I told you about the fear, like I call it fear of the freak out, but we have this fear because it's the thing that you're not supposed to talk about. It's the elephant in the room, right? So that feeling question really helps open up the conversation around the elephant in the room, which in this case, it's money. You know, we on this show, we're not going to unravel decades long issues of the fact that we're not talking about money, right? Intergenerational money trauma. No, we won't get that solved. (laughs) That's like a topic for another, for another time. Let's just talk about what to do about it. Mm-hmm. And the practical things, right? right? Because you're you're absolutely right. Well, the first practical thing is 
making it a requirement that your staff is having these conversations. That That's the first number one thing. And the way that you do that is making sure they know how to do it. Because what I see a lot of is everyone is trained in their respective offices of, of the compliance of the regulation, how to use the computer, you know, on the different offers, they're trained on all of these things. We need them to be trained on some practical things too. And it's just setting an expectation of what needs to be said on that initial phone call. So when there, if you have somebody who's an appointment setter, that appointment setter should say on the day of your appointment, X amount of dollars, you know, you'll be required to pay X amount of dollars prior to your appointment. It's super simple. You just spit out those words. You know, the thing is, it's not happening. If you can do that, if you can do that step one, then you have just increased the chance of collecting a payment, if that's how you do it, on the day of service by probably 30 to 50% because you've already planted the seed, okay? You've planted the seed that there is a payment due at the time of service. Listen, we live in such a modern world, there's probably even opportunity for whoever sets that appointment to go ahead and take the payment right then and there on that first call, right? Mm-hmm. If they're purchasing a package, you know, it's just, I know that the people, your audience, you know, they have all different kinds of ways about how they're going to um, collect that payment. Some of it might even be on a website. It just needs to be, the expectations need to be known ahead of time. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is going to be all about reviewing your financial contract. Just want to reiterate, like one of the things when you're designing the user experience for your clients, and especially for practitioners, People don't want to walk into what's already a vulnerable situation and not feel like they are in complete control of and have confidence in the interaction. Simple things like when you come to the office, you're going to take off your boots and you can like help yourself to tea or like whatever. People want to, they don't want to feel like they don't know what's going on when they feel confident about what to expect. Then they engage in the entire experience differently. So I love what you're saying here. It's just a check mark. Like the conversation around money has to be included in the communications you deliver around what to expect. I have a tagline I say, especially especially in a lot of um, the medical training I do, which is every patient, every time, everywhere. You know, every patient, every time, everywhere is an opportunity. So we want to make sure that we're setting up those proper expectations. Yeah, I totally love it. Number two. Number two, I think that now is the best time to be reviewing over your financial contract. You know, you want to have a document that is really outlining, outlining this financial contract, the sacred contract that you have with your patients and your clients, right? Make sure that it's reviewed by an attorney that isn't just getting a cookie cutter form that, you know, it's rinse and repeat. Make sure that this attorney understands your practice understands your business and understands the respective laws that govern your ability to collect. I love that. So for example, where I live in the United States, in the state of Illinois, there is a law that governs how someone, let's say they have a membership. So it could be a gym membership. It could be a membership to the martial arts place. It could be any kind of membership it actually falls upon the same contractual laws as the way a lease is signed. So when they sign the lease, you know, you actually owe the full money of the contract. So let's say it's a 12-month lease and it's $1,000 a month. So the actual amount of money that is due is $12,000 
And that is going to be broken down into $1,000 monthly payments. Okay. So that's just a super simple example. Mm-hmm. But the way that that is outlined in the contract is very important in the state that I live in. And if you don't have it outlined correctly, guess what? That whoever owes you the money just found a loophole to where now they don't owe you the money anymore because you didn't have all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. Your contract did not pass the mustard test. So that second point that I'm saying is make sure that you have an ironclad contract. Make sure that your whoever is signing that contract isn't going to be able to find a loophole because you didn't get some, you know, verbiage correct. This is just key important points around just like stepping in to complete ownership, like boss state in your business. Like we can have all of the paraphernalia in our background on our Instagram lives that we want that says we're a total boss. This is where like the metal hits the whatever I'm lost in my analogies, but um, (laughs) like you have to have these pieces in place. And these are like, this is all of the unsexy stuff that enables you to rise. It's the practical bomb. I know. I know. And you know what? Debt collections is not a sexy thing. It's a, it's a dirty job. Right. And the thing is though, that it's still very important. And these people, their feelings and their emotions, they're important. Mm -hmm. I think that in all of the stuff that I've seen you do over the years, you know, when you're marketing to, to your right ideal client avatar, that's going to really help, you know, because you, you really, you really know them, but times are changing. And so that person that might've had more financial confidence five years ago may not mm-hmm. have it today. And mm-hmm. so again, going back, I think the most important thing is making sure that they understand the financial expectations ahead of time. Okay. And then in your contract, you can actually outline what's going to happen if there is a non-payment situation. So for a lot of you, you might be taking a recurring payment off of a credit card. And then all of a sudden they've either declined the credit card has started to come back rejected, or they've blocked you in some way. And that contract, you know, is very important because just because they declined your credit card or declined the credit card payment doesn't mean that they don't still owe you the money. But how are you going to get from A to B to go about collecting that money? And that's where the conversations need to happen. I want to switch gears slightly because I, I honor the practicality around all of these pieces. I also just, I, I know you, like I know you've done, you know, the capital T, the, the work and, and you have had your own journey and exploration of your, of your leadership style. How do you talk about money within the context of your own family? Mm. So it's really interesting. My parents owned a debt collection agency. So the one thing that was just very understood was like, you're not going to have any debt. Even in high school, you know, I never wanted to owe anyone money. And then I've kind of noticed because as my, my children are, you know, they're in their early twenties and my son wanted to buy this e-bike, you know, it's like three or $4,000 to get this e-bike. And I said, well, I think that you should go to the bank and get a loan to get the e-bike. And he's like, I don't want to owe anyone any money. You know, the thing is debt is not the enemy. It's not bad to owe money. Money is literally a made up concept. As a collective, we use it to buy and sell goods. It's like almost like we're playing a board game. This is part of how we play the game. We sort of tend to look at debt as a bad thing. There's so many ways to look at it. You can look at debt as an investment. You know, in my book, Conscious Communications, I often would talk about like cleanse or clog. So we can think about this concept as 
cleanse or clog being, you know, cleanse being what's something that's good for you, clog being something that's bad for you. So if you're just hemorrhaging money because you've got things going out for subscriptions that you never use, or you're just ordering stuff every other day on Amazon that you don't need, or, you know, there's just a way to look about money that debt is accumulating and it's out of control, right? That would be a clog. But if there's money that you're doing that's investing in yourself and you have to take on a debt because it's it's an investment in yourself or in your business or in your children or your children even taking this out, that should be looked at as a healthy, very healthy thing. That is a resource that we have a privilege to have. It's a privilege to be able to take out a loan, but we shouldn't make the loan the bad guy. I tend to view debt, and I'm not talking about uncontrolled credit card debt, but I, I tend to view debt when you do choose to take that that business loan or a mortgage or some of these things. To me, it's just a symbol of betting on your future self. Mm. And that completely shifted my relationship with that piece as opposed to, oh, the size of your mortgage is bad or this is bad. I'm like, it, there's no there's no emotion associated with it as long as I can service that debt, it is a way for me to access something now and I'm betting on my future self to be able to pay back. That completely shifted my relationship to some of these numbers associated with my bank accounts. Well, and I think that as you know, when you're talking to your children about money, I think that one of the most important gifts you can give them around money is having them understand their, say their credit reports. Mm-hmm. And that's something, again, it's very unsexy, but you know, my son's credit score was 780. That's a very good credit score. Mm-hmm. And we had been talking about his credit score for a number of years and, you know, making a plan so that when he did apply for his first loan, he didn't even need a cosigner because he had done some responsible things with his credit. What are some of those responsible things that we can do to increase credit scores and the the corollary of that, like what are some of the things we do that actually decrease our credit scores? Well, the biggest thing that you're going to do to decrease your credit score is have a bad debt. So that's the that's the number one thing. So if you have if you are not making payments, you know, that's going to affect your credit score in a negative way. That's the biggest thing, especially if it's something that goes to court and there's a judgment that's going to have a huge negative impact on the credit score. I would say habitually paying things late. So if, if things are habitually getting paid 90 days late, that's going to start to affect your credit score. And I would say also in understanding credit, This is something that I think a lot of people don't think about. It's the debt to income ratio. Mm -hmm. So it's like, even if you're making payments every single month, but if you have your credit cards all maxed out and this starts to make a smaller debt to income ratio, that's going to lower your your credit score. So you want to have a big gap in your debt to income ratio. If you're talking about children, like a great thing to do with young people is just add them as an authorized user on your credit card. You don't even have to give them a credit card. You just literally add them as an authorized user. Then that's actually going to begin to build their credit profile. I love that idea. The earlier you can teach kids to be responsible about money, the earlier like they they get to see and feel and play with this with this entity as well. Like how my kids spend my money is entirely different than how they want to spend their own money. We give them money at the beginning of each winter ski season because they have these passes that they can 
uh, use. And if they want a hot chocolate and they come to me and they're like, can I have a hot chocolate? And I say, sure, I'll get you one. They're like, can I have this? Can I? Like they just, there's no qualms. And if I say to them, you can absolutely have a hot chocolate and also you can pay for it yourself. They're so judicious around. They're like, well, actually I really want it, but I'm going to wait till next week. Cause I only have like $7 left on my, my card. Like just, just handing that responsibility over to them. It's fascinating to watch how uh, they're interacting with the money piece as well, but they've got to practice. You got to play with it. It's so beautiful what you just said, because I, I just can picture little entrepreneurs in the making, you know, because right. they're, make, they're making an actual strategic plan about the hot chocolate. And they're, because you as mom are an unlimited resource to a child. Mm-hmm. Okay. But their mm-hmm. little allowance or whatever they have on their card, that is a finite resource, right? So having them understand like how they need to partition that out so that it lasts, I think that's brilliant. Yeah. It's been a lot of, it's been a lot of fun. Mary, what's the number one lesson you have learned in the management of money in your business or in your own world? What has been like an aha moment for you? That honestly, Megan, is that connection is truly the only currency. I love that. What a beautiful place. Yeah. And what a perfect place to transition something that I call our impact ingredients. And these are just some like quick rapid fire pieces that I I get to throw your way. And my first question is when you need to cultivate courage at a moment's notice, how do you do that? Wow. What a tough question. I think I call upon, you know, I, I have personally been through some rough things in my life. You know, I've had a daughter that's passed away. You know, I've raised, I've been a single mom of a special needs child. And when I need to call upon my courage, I can quickly remember so many triumph, triumph over tragedy moments in my life and kind of conjure up that inner Scarlett O'Hara who exists inside of me and realize that whatever's happening in this given moment, it is a temporary situation. What's your motivational beverage of choice? Mm, Water. what's your what's your mixer of life yeah listen like i i'm right there i'm right there with you what's your biggest non-negotiable that really changes a lot over the years my my non-negotiables have been surrounded by my own self-care and i think through covid i i kind of have this like concept to write a book called lockdown lessons but a lot of self-care went out the window during, you know, a pretty long, pretty long lockdown situation. My non-negotiable right now, Megan, is art. I have been doing um, all these art projects and I have just been doing them every single day and it has been skyrocketing my creativity. So that's my current non-negotiable, but they change all the time. Mary, what do you want your legacy of impact to be? Mm. Gosh, you've got the really big questions. The rapid fire big questions. I truly, truly am on a mission to change conversation that we have around money, one conversation at a time. I was at a conference recently that I was speaking at, and I could not even count the number of people who came up to me and told me, oh yeah, we use your, we use your training program at our agency, or we, you know, we train our people with your training program. And it blew my mind. Like it, it was mind blowing. And I started to like 
calculate the ripple effect because if I am interjecting, you know, my concepts, which, you know, I teach a step-by-step process, but if, if that reaches like thousands of conversations a day that are happening out there in the world that I know are creating connection, because I just love to say higher collections through stronger connections, that is my legacy, at least one of them. It is a beautiful and important legacy. Mary Shores, I adore you so much. I know you've got some cool things that people can access. Can you just share with people a little bit uh, about how they can delve deeper into your work? What I would love, love, love for you to uh, check out if, if you are trying to solve for this problem at your practice, okay? If you, if you have a business and you are starting to get a little nervous about people who are on payment plans or you're, you're struggling in some way around the money piece, please check out my website, maryshores.com. And on there, you're going to find some online classes. For only $197, I have a class that's called the Communication Code for Collectors. In that course, I'm going to teach you step by step how to have a very connecting conversation with people who owe you money. So it's just a very short five lesson course. My recommendation is that you would get this for maybe your office manager or your billing manager or somebody in your office that is going to be having this conversation. They will thank you for it and it will increase the money that you collect. Mary, I love that. You're just like walking your talk. You're like, this is what you get. This is what it costs. This is where you go to get it. This is how it's going to help you. It's like... It's perfect. There's just like a perfect bow on top of it. Uh, just like you, I adore you. I can't wait till we get to spend some time together again. Mary, thanks for being with me today. My pleasure. Impact is what lives on when we leave the room, tuck them in or step off stage. It is less about what you do, more about how you make them feel and everything about how you choose to show up in the world. If you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this episode. I am your host, Megan Walker. Until next week, aim for impact.